Well, good morning, Genesis Church. How are we doing today? I'm excited today. I'm excited. If you've, my name is Kirk Matthews. If you're a visitor with us, I'm an elder here. I'm not the normal preaching pastor. Uh, you got a taste of that from Mike Hubbard, who is our normal preaching pastor uh, this morning, he, who led us in our, our Lent prayer. But if you've been hanging around Genesis Church very long at all, you know that our typical preaching style is what we call expository. Just another way of saying we preach the Bible. Uh, typically, we'll pick a book of the Bible, we'll preach straight through it, uh, and pull out of it what the author meant for the original readers and what it means for us today as believers in the church of Jesus Christ. And I, and I love that preaching style. I love that's what we do here at Genesis. We just finished a one-year study of the book of Acts, 50 different sermons. It was awesome. Uh, but today we, we're taking a little bit different turn. We're launching a sermon series, as you've already heard, but this will be a topical study entitled Jesus Is. And from now until about the end of May, we're going to look deeply at who Jesus is. And church, I'm, I'm really, really excited about this. Think about this. Over the next several weeks, we will see that Jesus is God. And at the same time that Jesus is human, looking at the humanity of Christ, we will see that Jesus is Messiah, our Savior. On Easter, we will see that Jesus is sacrifice. Church, Jesus is priest, prophet, and king. We will see that Jesus is alive and that he is coming back. And we will see that he is our exclusive path to eternal life. Church, this series is going to be exciting, and we will see exactly who Jesus is. And if you are here today, and you don't know him, or maybe you don't know him well, our prayer is that this series will help you see that, that who he is, but more than that, that he loves you deeply, and his desire is to have a close, personal relationship with you. I'm excited about what God has in store for us over these next several weeks. Wayne Grudem, the theologian and author, he wrote a book called Systematic Theology, which is about that thick. Uh, and uh, the elders study one chapter of that every time we get together. Uh, he had this to say. We may summarize the biblical teaching about the person of Christ as follows. Jesus Christ was fully God and fully man in one person and will be so forever. This truth is, is difficult and challenging concept of, God, of Jesus being fully man and fully God is absolutely essential for our faith. So today we're going to kick off this series with a sermon titled, Jesus is God, the Deity of Christ. Next week, Mike will take up the, the topic that Jesus is also fully human and explain that challenging concept. I'm glad that's on him. So some of you know that I work in uh, Jefferson City and live in Jefferson City during the week. Uh, I work for the Missouri Medicaid Agency. And part of my job is to interact with legislators, uh, state representatives and state senators. I used to serve in the Missouri House of Representatives. And the reason I need to interact with them today is because Medicaid is this giant bureaucracy that's impossible to understand from the outside. And it also is the largest single budget item in our Missouri budget. So legislators constantly have questions 
their constitutional responsibility is to pass a balanced budget every year. And since we're the biggest budget item and it's really hard to understand, they always have lots of questions. Sometimes I have to testify in hearings, etc. So it kind of behooves me to get to, to know the legislatures. And I do know some of them from my previous work. So in January of this year, um, uh, at the start of the current legislative session, I attended the inaugural ball at the Capitol building. And it's a big party. The floor of the rotunda becomes a dance floor, and every legislator in the building uh, has an office, and they usually have food and drink and host a party in their office. And so I attended this this year. It's not really my cup of tea, but uh, I was making the rounds, uh, and I wanted to stop by and see uh, Mike Bernsketter. He's a senator. He's, he lives in Jefferson City. He's from that part of the state. He's a friend of mine. We sat next to each other on the floor of the Missouri House for two years, and I knew, and I knew him pretty well. So I wandered into Mike's office, and I was waiting in line. There's a lot of people to see him. And Mike's wife, Jeanette, came over to me. Now, I was always a little shaky. I'd met her once or twice before. I didn't really know her well. And I was always struggling to remember her name. I'm pretty sure it was Jeanette. But she came over and said hello and struck up a conversation. And it wasn't a minute into the conversation, and she looked at me funny, and she said, you don't know who I am, do you? That was pretty awkward. I'm thinking, oh gosh, she knows I don't remember. Is, is her name Jeanette? Is I, am, I, am I goofed up here? And I said, I was kind of caught off guard, and I kind of stammered, well, sure I do. You're, you're Jeanette. And she said, no, Jeanette's over there. And she pointed across the room. Well, this was really getting awkward fast. She, she said, my name is Michelle. I work for Senator Searpoid down the hall, and we met last year. So now I'm totally embarrassed, and I kind of glance across the room, and sure enough, when Michelle pointed out who the true Jeanette was, I did recognize her as Mike's wife. Maybe you've had a similar experience of mistaken identity that was embarrassing to you. This week, millions of Americans were embarrassed when they mistakenly identified Purdue as a number one seed. Uh, or, or, or maybe we should say mistakenly identified Princeton as a number 15 seed. I, I don't know. So, um, but but uh, so often the only real consequence of these kind of events is embarrassment. But when we are mistaken about the identity of Jesus Christ, the consequences are eternal and tragic. Now, I, I have to admit, I got the idea to use that. True, that's a true story, what happened to me in the Capitol building. Uh, I, I got the idea to use that from the foreword of this little book that Mike already put a plug in for, Who is Jesus? Um, so definitely pick that up. Read through that as this series goes on. You'll be blessed by it. It's a great little book. It's very easy to read. But when I thought back to my embarrassing capital uh, moment, and specifically the question that Michelle asked me, you don't know who I am, do you? It reminded me, it kind of reminded me of a similar question that Jesus asked his disciples in Matthew chapter 16. So if you have your Bible or your Bible app open, Please turn with me to Matthew chapter 16 and find verses 13 to 18. And if you don't have a Bible with you today, there are some in these baskets in the aisles. And if you don't have a Bible in your home, please take one of these home with you. We would love for that to be our gift to you. 
you can read God's word in your own home. So, uh, but if you found your place, Matthew chapter 16, starting in verse 13, and I think the words will be on the screen, perfect. Uh, Read along with me. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Church, this, this short passage really presents several important, even critical, I think, ideas for us to consider. But before we un- unpack that passage, I want to take a look at some, just maybe even just a few of the evidences that Jesus is in fact God, that he is divine. So keep your finger in your Bible at that place. We'll come back to discuss Matthew 16 in just a bit. But let's take a look at some of the attributes that collectively are found only in Jesus Christ. First, consider the fact that Jesus is omnipotent. The definition of omnipotence is the quality of having unlimited power. The examples of the unlimited power of Jesus are practically endless. But just to to name a few. He exhibited this power with his first miracle of turning water into wine. And again, when he performed the miracle that Mike already referenced, when he fed 5,000 with just a couple of fish and a few loaves of bread, he demonstrated his power, this unlimited power over the forces of nature on several occasions. When he calmed the Sea of Galilee, when, he was, when the disciples woke him up in the, in the, in the boat, And when he walked on water in the midst of the storm, he had unlimited power demonstrated in his power to heal that he did on so many, many occasions. And he even showed that he had the power to raise the dead when he called Lazarus out of the grave. Church, Jesus is omnipotent. He alone possesses unlimited power. But Jesus is also omniscient. And I looked up the definition of omniscience, and it was very simple. The state of knowing everything. Now, when I read that definition, I had to chuckle to myself a little bit. It's kind of an inside family joke. Jane is probably chuckling right now. Because I have teased every one of my kids when they were little, and now every one of my grandkids, that Papa knows everything. And I would just I would say something to them. And, How do you know that, Papa? Oh, Papa knows everything. Well, as they all got older, they began to call me out on that. And especially my grandson, Bo. And if you know Bo, I think he'll wind up to be a lawyer someday. He would say, oh yeah, oh yeah, Papa. Well, then what am I thinking right now? And he began to test my theory. And I would say, oh, Bo, I think you're probably thinking that you've trapped Papa. And uh, so he would prove out the fact that I do not know everything. But 
Jesus does. And in fact, he demonstrated he knows what people are thinking on several occasions. In Mark chapter 2, when they lowered the paralytic through the roof of the building where Jesus was preaching because it was too crowded to get inside. And he said to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven before he healed him. And the the Jewish leaders in the room were thinking to themselves, who is this man? Who does he think he is? Only God can forgive sin. And Jesus turned to them immediately and he said, why do you question these things in your heart? He knew what they were thinking. Jesus went on to say, what is easier to say? Your sins are forgiven or rise up and walk? And then he turned to the, to the uh, paralytic and he, and he told the, the, he said, but before you, but that you may know that the son of man has the authority to forgive sins. He turned to the paralytic and said, rise up and walk. And he did. Jesus demonstrated his omniscience when he knew who would betray him. He knew in advance that that Judas would be his betrayer. And then when he told Nathaniel that he saw him under the fig tree before he actually knew or met him, when he was a distance away, and on and on, Jesus is omniscient. Jesus is omnipresent, meaning he is everywhere at the same time. In Matthew 18, he tells us where two or more are gathered in my name, there am I in the midst of them. In Matthew 28, before Jesus ascended into heaven, he told his disciples, I am with you always to the close of the age. Church, Jesus is omnipresent. Jesus is also eternal. Wayne Grudem explains John 8, chapter 8, verses 57 and 59 like this. He said, when Jesus told his Jewish opponents that he had seen Abraham... They challenged him, saying, you are not yet 50 years old, and you have seen Abraham? They kind of said mockingly. Now, remember, Abraham is an Old Testament character, lived centuries before the birth of Christ. And Jesus made a startling claim. Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Now, when you think about the way Jesus made that statement, it's not doesn't seem grammatically correct, but it's also sequentially seemingly incorrect. He made two assertions whose sequence seemed to make no sense. Before something happened in the past, that is the existence of Abraham, something in the present tense happened. I am. But the Jewish leaders that he was confronting knew exactly what he was saying because he was not speaking in riddles or uttering nonsense. When he, church, when he said, I am, He was repeating the very words that God used to identify himself to Moses at the burning bush. I am who I am. Jesus was claiming for himself the title by which God designates himself as the eternal existing one. Who always has been and always will be. In Revelation, Jesus says, I am the Alpha and Omega. Church, Jesus is eternal, eternity, past and future. Now, if all of these things are not enough to prove that Jesus is divine, to prove the deity of Jesus, last but not certainly not least, Jesus is immortal. 
Jesus and no other human in the history of the world has had the power to lay down his life and take it up again. In John 10, uh, John writes this, for this reason, uh, Jesus says, for this reason, the father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down on my own accord. I have the power to lay it down and I have the power to take it again. This charge I have received from my father. Now, for today's purposes, I don't have the time and it's not the purpose of this sermon to prove the resurrection. There's a sermon coming on that that prove that Jesus is alive. We'll have an entire sermon on that topic. But church, Jesus is immortal. And when you look at these evidences of Jesus, these characteristics, these attributes that are collected in one man, it's clear that Jesus is in fact God. But we've really only scratched the surface of the evidence that Jesus is 100% God. You could do a whole study on what Jesus said about himself, and I'll, I'll, probably, I'll talk about that in just a minute. But you could also go on and on about what others said about the deity of Jesus. In John 1, verses 1 to 3, John writes, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him not anything made that was made. Then, a few short verses later, John tells us in plain language who the Word was, that the Word was Jesus, when he said, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, leaving no doubt who he meant to, who he's referring to when he said, in the beginning was the Word, in the beginning was Jesus. So now let's go back to Matthew chapter 16 for just a minute and see what, uh, see what God's telling us in this important message. First of all, Matthew tells us that they came into this area called Caesarea Philippi. Now I don't want anybody to be confused or confuse this Caesarea with Caesarea on the coast that we heard so much about in the book of Acts. You may recall Paul was in prison there for several years Caesarea on the coast is kind of in uh, western central Israel, uh, but it's very, uh, right on the coast. Caesarea Philippi is at the very northern tip of the country of Israel, uh, very close to the modern-day borders with Syria and Lebanon. It's actually in the foothills of uh, Mount Hermon, which is a, a snow-capped mountain in Syria. You don't think of that area having snow-capped mountains, but just a little bit north in Syria, there's a mountain called Mount Hermon, and Caesarea Philippi is in this foothills of this mountain. And it's a place with great natural beauty, uh, hills, springs with real crystal clear flowing water. But Caesarea Philippi became the center of religious worship for the Greek god Pan. The Greeks named this city actually originally Paneus in honor of this Greek god. But when the Romans conquered this territory later, Herod the Great's son, Philip, renamed the city Caesarea, Caesar, Philippi, in honor of Caesar and in honor of himself, quite frankly, thus the name Caesarea Philippi. Um, last November, Jane and I had, uh, were fortunate enough to join a tour group to go to Israel along with our daughter and her husband, and also along with Paul and Rebecca Larson. 
And this location was one of the sites that we visited. Um, and we have a, I took a picture of Caesarea Philippi. When you approach this, you can, we're, this is a picture from a long way off. And you can see there's this big rock cliff face of this, of this big hill. And you can see there, over on the left, there's a, there's a cave. And you can go to the next picture. And this is getting a little bit closer. And you can see this rock face with this big cave over on the left. And the pagans of ancient times believed that this cave was a corridor or a gateway to the underworld. And it literally became known as the gates of hell. The pagan god Pan is in part man, upper body of a man, lower body of a goat. You've probably seen pictures of him. Uh, He had horns on his head. He's uh, a very uh, unsightly character. One of Pan's presumed superpowers was the ability, if he became displeased, was the ability to instill fear in the entire population. It literally is where we derive the word panic after the god Pan. But Pan was not the only pagan god worshipped there. The Canaanites worshipped Baal there. And we can go to the next picture. There are at least 14 pagan religions that had altars carved into, and shrines carved into this stone wall. Um, and this is the location where many unspeakable rituals and sacrifices were conducted. And I can tell you, while it's a very interesting place to visit, it kind of gives you the creeps a little bit. When I, when I told Jane this was going to be in my sermon today, and I said, Caesarea Philippi, her immediate response was, oh, that evil place. But while we were there, <clears throat> we did make one unbelievable, in my opinion, uh, discovery. That, that Paul actually preached a sermon to some local students at this location. I don't, I don't find this recorded anywhere, Mike. I don't know if you knew this or not. But I have what I believe to be the only photographic evidence in existence that Paul preached at Caesarea Philippi. Can we see that? That's our own Paul Larson <laughs> standing with that cave, the gates of hell, over his left, right behind him in his left shoulder. And somehow, I don't know how, we were all kind of wandering around, look over, Paul's preaching Jesus to a bunch of students that, come, that came around him over there, standing right in front of the gates of hell. Oh, you probably thought I meant Paul the Apostle. Sorry, that's maybe another case of mistaken identity. Um, but church, it was no accident that it was against this backdrop that Jesus asked the disciples, who do men say that the Son of Man is? Does that seem like an interesting way to ask the question? Who is the Son of Man? Jesus frequently referred to himself as the Son of Man. In fact, this title is used 84 times in the four Gospels. And every time, it's used Jesus referring to himself. Now, I don't know if you've ever thought about where that came from, but... Jesus is referring to Old Testament Daniel in a vision that Daniel had and explained in chapter 7 where Daniel saw one like a son of man who came to the ancient of days 
and was given dominion and glory and kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. Grudem points out that this passage clearly speaks of someone who had heavenly origin and who was given eternal rule over the whole world. So when Jesus used this term referring to himself, he is laying claim that he is God, that he is divine, that he is the one who will come one day on the clouds in glory. The high priests, when confronting Jesus in Matthew 26, did not miss the point that Jesus was making when he said, when he told these high priests, hereafter you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. And in response to these words, these Jewish leaders immediately responded that he, he has uttered blasphemy and deserves death. Now we don't know exactly where Jesus was standing when he asked the disciples this question. But they were certainly somewhere near this exact spot. Maybe, maybe standing right there. We don't know. But standing there with the manifestation of all those pagan religions with all their vile practices right before their eyes, Jesus asked the question, who do men say that I am? I was talking with Rebecca Larson about this passage. And what struck her was, what must have been, or at least should have been, a very obvious contrast between the man-made gods represented on that stone wall and the God of the universe who made that stone wall and who was standing right in front of them. And I suppose if their eyes were not already open to who Jesus really was, maybe, maybe they were open at this moment because Jesus questioned Force them to consider what the world thinks about Jesus. This, this contrast between people of the world and people of the word. The word that became flesh in the person of Jesus. This contrast between people of the world who were and are today desperately seeking answers to life's challenges and left to their own sinful nature wind up creating a myriad of gods often gods that they create in the image of themselves. And absent any understanding of who Jesus is, they wind up performing all kinds of perverse rituals and eventually are swept away through the gates of hell. Versus people of the word, the word that became flesh, God incarnate, Jesus Christ, whose way is the way of repentance and love and salvation. And at this moment, stood before the disciples and ask what the world is saying about him. And they answered, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. Notice that their answer did not include, they, they are saying that you are God. In other words, they're telling Jesus, most people think you are a good man, a moral teacher, or maybe even a prophet. Now, at this point, I feel compelled to point out that this question has remained relevant throughout the ages and is a valid question for us to ask today. Who does the world today say that Jesus is? Now, I think, hopefully, we're past the point 
where no thinking individual can deny that Jesus existed, that he walked this earth. The evidence of his existence is indisputable, literally indisputable. The world literally, universally, marks the passing of time based on the date of Jesus' birth. Even those who prefer to abandon the term A.D. in the year of our Lord in favor of C.E., our current era, admit that when you ask them, how did you pick one C.E.? Well, it's the year Jesus was born. They just don't want to acknowledge that. But when it comes to how people answer the question today of who Jesus is, not much has changed in 2,000 years. Today, many will answer exactly like the disciples did. He was a good man. He was a moral man. Maybe he had some prophetic abilities. Church, nothing has changed. Today in our culture, people of the world are still worshiping gods of their own construct. The gods of fame and wealth and popularity and all sorts of things. While considering Jesus is just a good man, but certainly not God. And I, and I think we need a good reminder, a good caution at this juncture to remember that as people of the word, we must always remember our enemy is not the people of the world, but Satan, the deceiver himself. And his tactics haven't changed. Satan was, is, and remains hell-bent on trying to make people believe that Jesus was just another good man. In fact, as Mike already stole a little bit of my thunder this morning, uh, there are tons of surveys out, current surveys, that say what people think about who Jesus is. A survey conducted in 2020 said 52% of adult American adults say Jesus was a great teacher, but nothing more. And as Mike pointed out, even worse, a third of people that call themselves evangelical agreed with them. A third of evangelicals surveyed said Jesus was a good man, a teacher, but he probably wasn't really God. 60% of professing Christians, according to another survey, believe that Jesus is not the only path to salvation. You can find your own path, Buddha or, or uh, Confucius or Muhammad. It doesn't matter. In 2010, over 3,000 Americans between the ages of 15 and 55 were surveyed. And of the Christians, uh, and in that survey, those that identified as Christians, for, this is in 2010 now, 47% of those identified as Christians held closely to the biblical attributes of God. The accuracy of the Bible, the sinless nature of Jesus, that Jesus never sinned, and that Jesus was the only path to salvation. This organization conducted that same survey 10 years later in 2020, and 40, that 47% of Christians that held those beliefs had fallen to 25%. The church, church, we are in a free fall of understanding who Jesus is. And that's why, this, that's why I'm excited about this series. That's why I'm so excited that we will take a deep look at not only knowing who Jesus is, but knowing that he has a desire to have a relationship with you. So just like in the days of Jesus' earthly ministry... The world is painting him as just another man, albeit a good man, but just another man. 
But if you really think about it, if you really study this situation, Jesus did not really leave us with that option to think of him as just a good man. In fact, if you really think about it, it's impossible to correctly conclude that Jesus was just a good man. So in your conversations with people, if they tell you they just they don't believe he was God, he was but he was a good man. Think about this. One might reasonably conclude that he was really could only be one of three possible things. But a good and moral man is not one of them. First of all, you might conclude or consider that Jesus was a liar. We've already seen, just in our brief time today, that Jesus claimed to be God multiple times. He claimed divinity, deity. Now, if he knew that he was not, if he was an ordinary man like you or me, and he knew that he was not God, then he had to be a liar. And and if you're going to tell lies, that's that's a whopper. At least 84 times in the four Gospels, Jesus claimed to be God. It's actually what got him crucified. So if Jesus knew that his claim to be God is among the most horrible lies ever told, trying to deceive all of mankind about where to place their hope and their eternity is not just lying, church, that is pure evil. And if that is what Jesus was doing, No one in their right mind would declare him to be a good and moral man. He didn't leave us with that option. Moreover, no person in their right mind would die for such a liar. Yet each of the apostles and countless others through the ages have died defending Jesus as their Lord and God. And Jesus himself, think about this. If he was an ordinary man like me and you, but he was lying to the world and claiming himself God, Would he really go to the cross and die just to prove that lie? We can easily rule out the possibility that Jesus was a good man if he was such a liar. And I personally believe we can rule out the possibility that he was a liar at all. So that that leaves us, that narrows it down. We have another consideration. One might conclude that Jesus was a madman, that he was a lunatic. That he wasn't lying when he claimed to be God. He was simply delusional and actually believed it. He actually believed he was God. So his claims could not be characterized as lies. You can't call him a liar. But he was just crazy. He was just loony. But for a delusional man, he spoke the most profound words ever spoken. He never displayed any of the imbalance or abnormalities that are almost always present in the insane. His composure, his poise are not found in deranged people. I think we can rule out the fact that he was a lunatic. And that leaves us with only one remaining option, that Jesus is in fact Lord. I cannot personally come to that conclusion that he was either liar or a lunatic and I can't absolutely cannot accept the notion that he was just a good man good man is not going to lie to the world and a, and a lunatic is not considered a good man with great teachings the only remaining alternative is that he is who he said he was 
Now, the framework for this argument is not mine. <laughs> uh, perhaps you've seen it, read it, heard it. Many theologians down through the ages have pointed this out. Um, and, and they're all way smarter than me. C.S. Lewis, for example, in his, in his book, Mere Christianity, said this. I am trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him, that is Christ. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on a level with a man who says he is a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the Son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come up with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. I love that quote. And if you're interested in reading more about the framework of this argument, liar, lunatic, or Lord, you can read it in several works. Uh, Josh McDowell wrote about it. Uh, more recently, Lee Strobel, The Case for Christ. Lee Strobel is an attorney who set out to prove in the court of law kind of setting that Jesus was a fraud and he wound up becoming a a believer in Jesus because he was convinced by the evidence. So we've answered this first question uh, that Jesus asked in terms of today's culture. What What does the world say? Who does the world say that I am? But Jesus now takes this question and asks, Who do you say that I am? Looking square in the eyes of the apostles. Jesus takes this question from the masses to the personal. From the culture to the person. And Peter answers quickly, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And church, this has become known as Peter's confession. And Jesus' reply has become one of the most controversial and debated passages among theologians in the history of the scriptures. He said, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And remember, he stood this in front of that cave that had become known as the gate to hell. Now, there are really kind of three different interpretations of this controversial passage. And the part that's controversial that I'll focus on today is what did Jesus mean when he said, on this rock, I will build my church? Well, there are three kind of different interpretations. Our Catholic friends believe that this rock meant the person of Peter, Peter himself. And they use this in support of the idea that Peter uh, became the first pope. Um, Now, I don't particularly lean into this interpretation. Just a few verses later in the exact same chapter, Peter is rebuking the Lord Jesus when Jesus was talking about his impending crucifixion. And Jesus said, get thee behind me, Satan. 
Um, hardly what one might expect to be said of the Pope. But, but this is a widely accepted interpretation, um, and there's no denying Peter's role in the start of the early church, particularly at Pentecost. We read about Peter and the start of the book of Acts. There's, a, there's another interpretation that when Jesus said this rock, he was referring to himself, and perhaps he was gesturing to himself. You know, you, Peter, are... You are Peter, and on this rock, perhaps Jesus might have done such a thing. And that he was referring to himself, and Jesus later is referred to as the cornerstone. So there is definitely some consideration to be given to that interpretation. But I kind of tend to lean into this third, this third interpretation, which is that by saying this rock, Peter, Jesus did not mean Peter himself, but Peter's confession. Peter's act of confessing with his mouth that Jesus is Lord. A confession that every person must choose for himself or herself to make or not to make. This believer's confession is the rock on which Jesus will build his church. And notice the possessive pronoun, his church. Again, signaling his deity. And in in the original Greek, the word that Jesus used for church is ekklesia. Which, which is a word that means a group, but not just a group of people, a group that are called out. A group of people that are called out for a purpose. This is the first use of this word in all of Scripture. And again, Jesus uses a building metaphor. He's not referring to an actual structure when he says, I will build my church. Church, this rock, this act of confessing Jesus is Lord, Savior, God, who alone can save us from our sinful nature, this is what binds us together as a church family. It is what makes us a community called out, an ecclesia called out to his purpose, a church that built on this foundation, the gates of hell cannot prevail against it. And that act of confession is personal. Just as Jesus asked this personal question, who do you say that I am? We have to ask the same question today. In fact, I believe this is one of the most important questions ever asked in the history of humanity. Every person who ever lived, who ever will live, was or will be confronted with this question at some point. The scriptures tell us, every, one day every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Your answer to this question has eternal consequences. So, my hope, my prayer, is that Today, Jesus has touched your heart and convinced you that he is, in fact, Almighty God, that he is Lord. And like I said, we barely even scratch the surface of all the proofs, of all the evidences that Jesus is who he said he was. If that's happened to you today, 
we would love to have a conversation with you. Or maybe you're here today and you've, you've not become convinced. But maybe, you're, maybe the Lord opened your mind a little bit today to consider the possibility. And maybe you want to learn a little more about that. We would really love to visit with you. And as the band comes forward here, in just, a, in just a moment, we're going to take communion. And part of that process, before we actually take the Lord's Supper, there will be a time of reflection and prayer. A time when you, in the privacy of your own seat, wherever you might be in this room or at home, where you can speak directly to the God of the universe who created all things, who wants a relationship with you. You can take this time to confess your sin, to make sure you're in a right relationship with him. You can reflect on your own condition before a a holy God. Then after the service, we'll have people right over here in this corner I would love to talk to you about that if you'd like to know more. If God's touched your heart today, um, please, please, please do not leave without taking that step to speak with someone. Church, let's pray. And And then Bob Lancaster will come and lead us in taking communion. Father God, what a humbling experience it is to come before you today. Father, we acknowledge that you are, as we have already sung, King of kings, Lord of lords, and and one day every knee will bow and every tongue confess that you, Jesus, are Lord of lords. Father, we praise you for that. We thank you for that. We thank you that you have ask this question to us, each of us personally today. Who do we say that you are? Lord, let us wrestle with that. And as this series progresses, Lord, let us just grow in the knowledge and in the faith of you as our Lord and Savior. Lord, we love you today. We praise you today. We worship you today. And we ask you these things in the mighty and holy and precious name of your Son, Jesus. Amen.